friends, and welcome to Beatles Stuffology, where two old friends stood about and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track -track basis, pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McCourney, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Deacon. Say hi, Andrew. Hello, how are you? I am tickety-boo, thank you, how are you? I'm I'm good, I'm, I'm excited, um, because we've got a biggie today. We sure do. We sure do. In fact, one of the biggest biggies that could ever be big. We are going to be tackling I Want to Hold Your Hand. Um, yeah, it's quite nice to come to this song after a dearth of material uh, where we have been struggling a little bit to, uh, to flesh out a running time. I'm guessing that's not going to be much of a concern this time out. No, and there's there's almost too much, almost to the point where I think we ought to, uh, um, you know, maybe let's deal with the song first because there's plenty to talk about there and then maybe dive into um the the cultural aspects the significance and the the many tentacles that spring out from uh, from this song because it's um it, it it's far reaching it's uh, you know amazing how you can join up dots from this to so many different things it's an astounding piece of uh well, it's a, it's an astounding cultural lodestone, let's say it that way. But uh, yeah, okay. Well, let's um, let's start with the song itself then. Um, what do you think of it? Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't on, suck. onto the culture. Um, it's, <laughs> okay, so um, I think you you kind of have to um, think about the fact that the the lyrics are basically dreadful, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You know, I, I I think there's that sense I think I've mentioned before about um, McCartney has some bunch of half written lyrics and, and it doesn't matter. It's the feel of it that counts. And I think that was their their view on songs like this as well. That you know you you sing um, sing a melody that goes with the chords that you're playing, um, and you know the, the again the time between uh, writing the song, rehearsing the song, recording the song, releasing the song is so short you just don't get around to changing the words. Don't sweat it. It doesn't matter. This this is not a song where where the words matter unless you're Bob Dylan, but more of that later. Um, and and as a result, you've you've got I want to hold your hand. Great, okay, that's that's nice, but it doesn't matter because there's such a kind of like verve and energy to to the song that you know if you listen to it as no doubt you've done and certainly as i've done this week several times and in several different formats by several different artists it just worms its way in stays there takes over your brain and and basically leaves you like check off in the wrath of khan um yeah well that's that thank you for that star trek reference i do appreciate it that was just uh, for you thank you that's very very thoughtful of you um yeah but i mean it's 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 i mean yeah it is pretty much the ultimate earworm isn't it once you get this stuck in your head it's it's not going anywhere um it's just so joyful it's just so kind of ebullient and so full of of life and enthusiasm and fun and joy and just everything else. I mean, it's it's another one of those songs where it can be a little bit hard to find the right adjective because there are just so many that apply to it. Um, and yeah, like the lyrics are basic. That's fine. Yeah. Um, but I don't. Uh, yeah, it's impossible to criticize them because yeah. there's, there's no. Essentially, I think I don't like you know kind of that sort of whole voices instrument thing, but. Honestly, that's kind of what they are here. You know, they're they're another instrument in the mix. I think it's a point that Ian McDonald makes in, in Revolution in the Head that it's less about uh, the song and more about the record. Um, and I think that's kind of how the lyric and the 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 uh, the vocals are are sort of deployed in this 
song. It's about the fact that they're another instrument in the mix. It's not about trying to find anything deep to say other than, you know, it, it has that general sense of, of connectivity, I suppose. You know, that's literally the point of holding hands. Um, so it's inclusive. It's it's bringing people together. But beyond that, it's it's another it's another instrument in the mix and, and all the more effective for it. I, th- I think their harmonization on this is is just taken up another notch as well. It, it's just um, so clever and so distinct. OK, so the harmonies on on the last album. I mean, bearing in mind this this was recorded basically at the same time, pretty much at the end of those album sessions. Um, you know, it's it's good on that. That's fine. It's effective. Just like on, you know, Love Me Do, it's really good. On Please Please Me, it's really good. On She Loves You, it's, you know, another step up. This is them taking it that little bit further. Um, you know, you can you just listen to it and you just think, Do you know what? They really worked out what they were doing here rather than just kind of like a throwaway. Let's get this done in a studio. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of care and attention. It may have been done in a short period of time, but they really worked this one out and threw absolutely everything they possibly could at it. You know, just the you know, I I when they are singing, I want to hold your hand. The the variety in in that um, is is just phenomenal, especially as they they get towards the the end of the song really really impressive yeah it's it's amazing it's it's hard to overstate just how much energy is captured in in the vocal performances here like i completely agree of course about the harmonies uh when mccartney goes high um at the um well, various different points but it's just yeah it's it's just it's just kind of breathtaking and, and it's one of those things that you just yeah uh it's hard to describe when talking about which is a bit of a limiting factor in a podcast but but I'm I'm pleased we've gone in on on the vocals because it's definitely one of those songs where the whole is greater than than you know the the individual elements of it. You break it down, and you know the drums and the bass. Yeah, you, know, you know, yeah, all right. It's it's sort of effective, and you know, um, um, I think I think Lennon's rhythm guitar uh, is is quite strong. George's top guitar line you, you listen to it on its own you're sort of thinking really George you're not working very hard on this song are you but actually you, you throw it all together and and it's it's one of those for someone who's not um a, a music aficionado you know I know what I like and all of that sort of thing you know listening to the the various um individual tracks on it and getting to the point where you think Right. Okay. Is this really as great a song uh, as as I remember, or as as I've just been listening to? Um, and then you think, okay, right. Well, let's let's sort of piece all of that together, and it just works. I mean, it's it is amazing in that respect. Lennon Lennon's guitar on this, I think, works because actually, um, you know, and this is sort of like the first time I'm kind of diving in into a little bit more depth in terms of the the musical side of it. On on the verse, it's quite choppy and there's a real sort of rock and roll rhythm to it but on the chorus when obviously all the focus needs to be on the voice and the harmonization i mean it's it's very very quiet and just kind of jaunty almost going with the um you know the the melody which i think is really effective so it you know the the chorus sounds punchy come the uh, so the verse sounds punchy and and then the chorus you're honing in on on the harmonization which is really clever yeah, it is. It's incredibly well constructed. And um, 
you know, I mean, you you sort of mentioned the melody before. Uh, there isn't actually that much melody. Is there? It's a fairly mm. kind of flat melodic line, um, which is given life by well, both the strength of the performance and particularly the harmonies and background uh, vocals. Um, and I think that's I think that's a perfect example of what you mean about the whole being more than the sum of the parts. It it, yeah. it isn't that much when you take it apart. It really is all in the construction. But again, that's why it's such a brilliant song. It's got that construction; it holds together, and and the sense that everybody has found their place in the song is as strong as it's been on any song I think that we've covered so far. Like you said, George doesn't do much, um, which is true, um, but he gets that little do 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 dum run, which which presumably he's playing on the bass strings of his guitar because it's not it's not McCartney that's doing it, and it's it's just. It's just such a little extra push that the song again doesn't doesn't require, but the fact that it's there is giving that extra. But yeah, elsewhere he's kind of down. He's not doing all that much, but he doesn't need to. That's he's he's got his little bits that he's contributing, and they're making all the difference where he needs to. Yeah, you're absolutely right, right about Lennon's rhythm guitar as well. The the rhythm that he's playing is isn't just kind of his cut and paste stuff from previous songs like you can hear that he's making an effort to try and put something extra into it the bass suffers a little bit from the recording there's not a lot of bass in this which is not untypical for for kind of early Beatles stuff and even kind of the remastered versions struggle to get much out of it but yeah like McCartney's still all over this of course Ringo's doing his thing in the back um and doing it brilliantly uh it's just everything everything is just right and I suppose as well, it's, well, it is worth mentioning the middle eight as well, because um, in a, a lot of songs, you you could get a sense that a middle eight is very much tacked in, um, or if there's an instrumental break, that it's just there because of the ego of the guitarist or whatever. But this is, I think, one of the most effective of the early Beatles middle eights, because it retains the power and the enthusiasm of the song, and it builds and it builds and it builds and then it releases you back into to the verse um and, and so it's just effectively heightening the excitement of of what's gone before yeah it absolutely does and it's got that tension in it as well so when it cuts back to the and when i um oh what is it uh and when i touch you i feel happy inside it, it pulls the energy back but it doesn't slow it down it it, it builds tension yeah. and then eventually that gets released with the with the uh i can't hide i can't hide and again like McCartney's high harmonies and that that line just yeah. just then explode out back into the verse. It's an astonishing thing. And you can sort of feel the link to what's going to go on. I was just sort of um, you know in my mind, I was I was kind of running through the middle eight again, and it, as as you sort of do, I, I then kind of veered into another. So I'm pretty sure earlier I was almost sort of going into to I feel fine, but also then I should have known better as well. So you can see echoes of what they're doing here in some um in some later songs as well you know this is really one of those uh one of those moments where and perhaps you know having recorded the the album they then had this this surge of energy in a minute we'll get on to perhaps some of the stories relating to that and and why they then recorded this wrote this recorded this in the way that they did but you can sort of feel like it is that that very much that sense of all right okay we need to up our game here we need that a little bit more. We need to go for something else. And, and they've really pulled it out. It's amazing the determination when you, you put someone in a corner and you say, right, okay, you're good. Now be the best. And, you know, some people respond to that. Some people will collapse under the pressure. Not these guys. 
no, I think it's fair to say they responded pretty ding dang good when it came to this. I, I think that would be would be hard point to argue. But yeah, it's that thing about being about being put on the spot. Yeah, go away, boys. Write a song for the Americans. Uh, okay, well we'll just write this kind of cultural epoch then, if that's all right with you. Sure, it's two and a half yeah. minutes long. It's uh, eight chords and I don't know what twenty words or thirty words, something like that. Yeah, oh, okay, I didn't check fine. this time. No, I didn't that, check. I'll forgive you. Um, but yeah, it, it's um, it's astonishing. It's just such an astonishing piece of music. And it, it, it is carried out, you know, I mean, there's a reason that, you know, for all that we've talked about, you know, great songs, uh, you know, up to this point, I saw her standing there and, and, you know, she loves you and all the rest of it. There's a reason that this is the one this is the one that changed things. And, and it's such a corny thing to say. It's such a cliche. But it's still true. It is. I think a sign of that is, um, you know, when when we remember to talk about cover versions on on previous episodes, I've often mentioned the fact that a lot of the cover versions are basically just a a very straightforward replication of of the song. It's because an artist wants to do a Beatles song. Let's pick an early Beatles song and do that and do it in the same way. But actually this song survives being performed in different ways and you know there's there's two in particular that really stand out for me um one one of which um you know to to reference uh, something someone wrote about it is either genius or or the worst thing ever and that's the the version by sparks um which was apparently originally um put together for marianne faithful but she wasn't then able to to perform or she backed out it's a glossy orchestral poppy beautiful saccharine wonderful sickly disastrously amazing piece um and the other one is just the funkiest piece of soul from the reverend al green that is mesmerizing i'm not saying it's better um you know it's sort of on on a different path to the beatles but there's punch to it and it's it's very definitely I want to hold your hand, but it's very very definitely a piece of soul and Al Green, and it, you know it's early days of Al Green as well. We're talking late sixties here, um, and so you know it's just remarkable in that we we've got that that sort of poppy stardust and that that soulful punchy rendition as well and it works with both yeah and that that does really show off the flexibility of the song itself i mean that's that's the thing about both those cover versions they are both completely and utterly different both from the original and from each other and yet the core essence of the song remains the same and that's what a good cover version i've mentioned this before but that's what a a good cover version should do in, in my opinion it should be able to reinvent the song and yet still stay true to the original and I think both of those do that I mean the Sparks version in particular is so massively over the top and it's really hard to tell whether they're meaning it seriously or whether they're just taking the piss it's almost certainly both and but that's yeah that's that's that liminal space that Sparks occupy you know they are both incredibly serious and also just incredibly tongue-in-cheek um, and it, it works staggeringly well for this song but equally all that soul all that funk that gets poured into the Al Green version is just it's so different. It's such a contrast, but there's no sense that these are, are kind of diametrically opposed. They're very much, you know, they're very much the same song. It's very much 
retaining the core of, of what the Beatles do. And they're both they're both energetic, but both in completely different ways. The, the energy from the Sparks version comes from this kind of sweeping, kind of over-the-top, yeah, orchestral fluff. Uh, the energy comes from, uh, you know, Al Green's performance and, and just a sheer absurd levels of funk uh but but again very different from just like the straightforward rock and roll energy of the original it's incredibly captivating i think it's the rhythm as well the fact that it's it's um it's a little bit slowed down just a little bit but then that gives it a different edge and it allows al green to be you know much punchier um you know, and and the horns on it really work as well. Um, It just adds that, that different line. Um, So I think that's, uh, I think that's actually a really good point that you make about the speed of the song making a difference as well. The mm -hmm. version that the Beatles do at the Hollywood bowl is, is noticeably faster than the recorded version. Um, But actually ends up sapping some of the energy of it. There's plenty of live versions around. Um, Some of them are great. Some of them are are pretty mediocre. But the Hollywood Bowl one isn't particularly good. And it isn't particularly good because it's too fast. It Mm -hmm. it loses the... It it mistakes speed for urgency, I guess. And, you know, of course, everybody always plays faster when they're live. But but this, this takes it too far. And it actually ends up dissipating the energy of the original, um, whereas you're quite right with the, the Al Green version as well, which just just slightly slows it down, but it does give it that that different that different feel to it. It makes it makes a real difference to the way the song sounds and the the kind of energy that it captures. It, it's uh, so yeah, no, I think that's a very astute observation. Which which bearing in mind that the Beatles play everything fast anyway, so mm. that, you know even if if you just think of, of say of some of those supposedly slow songs, yeah, if I fell. No, sorry, that's quite up tempo, Michelle. Yep. That's quite up tempo. Sorry, you know, there's 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 loads of them. Even Blackbird has a, a a kind of you know punchy pace to it as well. Um, you know, so there's loads. I mean, Julia maybe. Um, that's yeah, yeah, that's a bit. Anyway, there's there's very few dirges in in the Beatles catalogue. So you know, that's that's kind of their thing. So we kind of hinted um, at the kind of the cultural side of it. And now we've been going for about as long as we, we've managed for um, for for some recent songs. You know, we're, we're, we're nearly on 20 minutes. And we've only kind of hinted at, at um, I think the word America has come up maybe once or twice. Um, and yeah, it, it, I believe it was was Brian Epstein who basically said, look, guys, um, he may not have said guys, um, you need to write yourself something for the, the American market because obviously it, it was a problem for them. And and this is where, you know, from some of the things I, I, I've read, you just find it astonishing that they were in this position. It's EMI owned Capital Records. So they had access to, you know, Love Me Do and I saw him standing there and Please Please Me and She Loves You. And they passed they, they they passed on them, and yeah. EMI, the parent company, couldn't actually manage to to persuade them or tell them that they needed to release these songs. So you know, we get to the period in very late '63 where the Beatles have absolutely no presence in America, so they have to be told write a song for America because obviously it's the thing. You know, how many covers have they done of um, of really so far of British acts? Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. You know, everything is looking westward. Um, you know, it is where rock and roll has has kicked in. The blues has kicked in. Soul, it's kicking in. 
and and it's it's their their inspiration for absolutely everything okay so you can maybe take the the Lonnie Donegan skiffle inspiration okay that that's fine but even that had a um, an American you know roots that you could trace back to people like you know Woody Guthrie for example yeah so and a very limited shelf life it's worth adding that that wasn't well, an influence that hung around for very long either yeah. and and pre the Beatles you know British rock and roll didn't travel Cliff apparently um when he went to America he was about 12th on on the bill utterly humiliated didn't take off um one of the best pre-Beatles British rock song um which you know I've, I've only been listening to for the last couple of weeks and I'm mesmerized by the I mean I, I recognize the guitar lick I've heard it tons of times but I hadn't pieced it together with with anything else is you know Johnny Kidd and the uh, and the pirates shaking all over which is just phenomenal it was a hit later for someone else in America but you know outside of the UK nothing and yet it, it's a song that's probably known worldwide so there's there's no sense that that America was interested in British rock and pop and I'll, I'll say that deliberately because when we get on to talk about the Ed Sullivan show you know you'll see that they were interested in British culture there were lots of things that they did like about Britain but our take on rock and pop was not one of them so uh, I mean it's an incredible thing that not only were they said write something for America uh, that's going to be a smash in America but then they went away and they did it and they did it inside an hour yeah that's not bad right that's that's that's, that's pretty good um and sort of talking about the sort of the British acts that uh you know succeeded or not in America at this point there had only been two British number ones uh one of them was Telstar uh and the other one was my old friend Mr Acker Bilk with uh, Strangers in the Shore that was it this was number three and you know I again I I don't want to diss either of those two songs that would be dreadfully unfair but it's not hard to take a look at those three songs and think one of these things is not like the other. And, mm. and that's, you know, mm. that's it. I mean, this is the breakthrough record. It is the moment that everything, everything changed. And although it was a, you know, it was a Christmas number one in the UK, it was a little bit later in, in America. And, and honestly may have benefited from that, I think. I suspect not yeah. being kind of tied up with the whole Christmas market might have given it, um, might have given it the opportunity to kind of break through when the charts aren't cluttered with a lot of other stuff at the time. Um, but yeah, it, it 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 was off, and then yeah, it's just never the same again. But I think I think it's also worth though um, going back to the writing of that because as much as this is about breaking them in America, there's lots of clues in the writing of it and in in what the Beatles are doing at the time that is also about them breaking from Liverpool yes because the song was written in the basement of Jane Asher's parents house you know this is not Paul and John eyeball to eyeball in in Paul's house or Aunt Mimi's living room you know or or even you know the place they were living when John was a, a art college or, or whatever you know they, they've moved on and they're now in London Lennon is in London and living off the Cromwell Road in an apartment, not just with Cynthia, but also with Julian. You know, they have moved on. Um, you know, Paul is basically in the Asher's house almost permanently. And, you know, they're in the room where Jane Asher's mum would teach 
um, it would uh, have music lessons for, for her pupils down there. And well, okay, they were down there, eyeball to eyeball, playing chords and picking out what was interesting and what wasn't and going, okay, well, that's an interesting chord. Let's go with that. So, you know, it's I, I just find it, it fascinating that they've kind of moved from London, uh, from Liverpool. They have to move uh, and, and centre themselves in London because that's where everything is now. That's That's where you know their world is going to be but then they've still got those eyes on on going west and then when they do record it and they get some fabulous news from brian epstein about the um about the pre-orders and they're basically told they've had a record number of pre-orders um something like a million um lennon's reaction to that is utterly hilarious and very typically john lennon and his reply is something in the lines of we're not going to be at number one for very long then are we (laughs) <laughs> which is course, it is kind of typical it is, it is i mean little did he know it would be number one for for months and months and months um but i i just love that as as a reaction but it also looks as though it was getting that reaction in america a very small number of djs were effectively passing it to each other and i love the story about the one in in new york who played it so often he was aware of the fact that people might be taping it off the radio so he would cut into the song every so often and say his name and the radio station so that they couldn't then um record that and then play that somewhere else he obviously knew he was onto something and then it went out to the chicago market and and a dj was playing it there and then suddenly when the record company starts getting um you know lots of people in those areas going um we want this record please capital had to do something about it they couldn't leave it to those very minor record companies anymore that had released the beatles singles over there previously and i think that's that's really important that they were number well i mean firstly the release was brought forward to 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 um take advantage of of that that interest that heightened interest that was there um but also remember that the Beatles had not set foot in America at this point and they got to number one. So that whole thing about, well, Cliff went over there to try and break it and it was an utter flop. They were so determined that they they waited. They waited until they were a success and then they could take advantage of it. Um, apparently there's a story that they were told they were number one whilst they were in in a hotel room in, um, in Paris because they were doing lots of recording um there i think they may also have done the german versions yeah, yeah, yeah. um of, of, of this around that time as well and then they had um um a bloody great pillow fight to celebrate and there's, <laughs> there's some quite famous pictures of them them with that and that's only a couple of days before they they um they actually went out to america it must be an amazing feeling knowing not only the biggest thing in britain but now you are for the moment at least the biggest thing in america well, that for the moment is going to be a very, very long moment indeed. Um, you know, we're we're at the time where we also have to start talking about you know the first five songs in the Hot One Hundred, fourteen songs in, yeah. in, in 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 the Hot One Hundred. It's you know all that kind of stuff. Um, well, should we, should we deal with the as it, as it was released in the UK first? Should we deal with the UK charts first? All right, let's deal with the UK charts first. Um, they. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent, excellent lead in there, Poppy. Thank you. Um, it's it, it's absurd. It's just all of it is so absurd, and um, it's kind of interesting to look at the charts in the UK simply because of um, like you mentioned the variety of stuff which is on the Ed Sullivan Show, and we'll get to that in a wee bit. Mm. But the the first two when 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 the song gets to number one, 
uh, which it does in December 1963. Um, it's it's you know uh, straight in. Uh, the song that knocks off number one is "She Loves You," so that's fine. That's all. 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 There you go. Number three in the charts is the simply atrocious You Were Made For Me by Freddie and the Dreamers. Um, <laughs> it's really bad. Um, and the rest of the top ten is a kind of... It's it's a weird, it's a weird collection of songs. Number four is Kathy Kirby with Secret Love. Says nothing to me, I don't know. Um, yeah, maybe, sorry, Kathy Kirby fans out there. Um... Yeah, then uh, Los Indios Tabayaras. Yeah, says nothing to me. Then Cliff. Okay, fair enough. Um, Dusty Springfield's acceptable version of I Only Want to Be With You. It's fine. It's not the best version of that song. Uh, then Jerry and the Pacemakers, Dave Clark 5. Um, and then Dominique by The Singing Nun at number 10. It, that's quite a random selection of music, I would suggest, um, particularly in that kind of like Christmas run-up. Um, and the rest of the top 20 isn't any less random. Like the Rolling Stones are in there, Robbie, Roy Orbison's in there, um, yeah, the Hollies, Gene Pitney. It, it's, you know, it's a reasonable... Oh, and, and, and good old Burley Chassis. Um, it's, it's all sort of fairly standard, um, you know, 1960s fare. But that top 10 is deeply peculiar and um, sort of putting I want to hold your hand up against those kind of songs it, it does also help to clarify why this was such a vast success because there's nothing even close to them in 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 that kind of setup other than themselves the only song which is even faintly in the same the same kind of ballpark is is she loves you okay you'll never walk alone that's a classic for all time it's it's kind of hard to argue with it and again it's one of those songs where the the quality of the song is doesn't matter it, it's completely belied by the song's reputation and it's kind of it's cultural place for the rest of them there's just nothing that can come close to it and so um for all that this has such a massive impact in america it's it's very clear why the same kind of success um, had already beckoned in the UK. There's just nothing else there to to kind of hold the interest. Well, I, okay, so that argument would work if it sold uh, the same amount as She Loves You plus one, but it doesn't. It obliterates it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so it is. Um, it's not just number one because it is comfortably the best there. It's number one because it is a way out front. Uh, um, and they are a way out front. I mean, you know, let's let's not underestimate Dusty Springfield's cultural legacy. Um, but oh, I don't want to put if, our Dusty down. Don't worry about that. No, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And you know, remember we got the the Rolling Stones in in the charts around this time. But admittedly, with I want to be your man, mm. um, you know, it, it's it's just so much more. Um, and and I think we should also then be considering the fact that we're entering into that that television age as well you know we've got the likes of ready steady go kicking around but we've also got the fact that i want to hold your hand is the first top of the pops number one as well when it starts broadcasting uh the beginning of january 1964 absolutely um and you know they weren't on it that's the funny thing of course <laughs> the beatles i think only appeared on top of the pops once and I think that's for paperback writer. Everything else, well, I think it might be. Sorry, in, in 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 the studio, actually I, live in the studio. I'm not sure about that. I, okay. The reason the reason I think it's reason I think it, oh, I'm questioning myself now because there's a yep. clip there's a clip of them uh, which is 
played on uh, the Doctor they... Who story, The Chase. Um, okay, so is... can, I, can I just... Well, uh, no, um, it can't be day trip. Right. Can I, can I just, just yep. jump in there? We're, we're talking about you know pre-recording videos that were inserted and promotional clips. So their songs were played. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I, I understand just the not them in <laughs> Just not them in the studio. Yeah. Um, you know, because they were, you know, in Paris. They were also getting ready to go off to America. So... Top of the Pops, folks, you know, for you young'uns who don't remember it, was for a long period of time, perhaps in the 60s, definitely in the 70s, and for a significant part of the 80s, the preeminent music show on British television in terms of a mass audience. Um, And for the Beatles effectively to be in a position where even at the start of this thing, they are already too big for it is just a sign of, of how much people are, are grasping around to, um, to follow in their wake. Ticket to Ride. That was the song I was looking for. I agree with all of that, but a hasty bing informs me it's Ticket to Ride that was used in Doctor Who, and that was uh, from, from Life Top of the Pops footage. Um, uh, okay, fair enough, but you're wrong. Okay, but I'm not. Um, anyway, um, yeah, it, I mean, everything about the the, 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 the fact that, that that was even then, I mean, just uh, uh, very briefly diverting to Doctor Who, because I always do. Um, but uh, like, again, the fact that, the, you know, their cultural legacy and the cultural impact that the Beatles are having at that point can kind of infiltrate other parts of popular culture and that they are already being seen as this kind of... Um, dominant cultural force and I obviously uh, take it to rise a little bit later than I want to hold your hand but that the point is is that it's not that much further down the line um, and that kind of cultural impact is already being felt it's already being assumed to be the the the, the force that everybody is going to recognize and it's not just in a kind of oh well you know this is the latest trendy kind of thing but it's something which is going to have real cultural cachet and of course that's entirely entirely correct there isn't ever going to, there's never going to be another band in the 60s which can come close to that um but it's it's just i don't know it's it's so strange to see this list of songs and just think and then those two at the top everything about it is just so different and i kind of find that captivating i i i love the diversity of uh the tracks which are there but but it's so clear it's so clear why why things moved yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, the the first audience for this when um, Lennon McCartney wrote it, by the way, was um, was Peter Asher, uh, Jane's brother, um, which I think is quite interesting because then, of course, what did um, um, well particularly McCartney do? He wrote him a number one single for when he, uh, for Peter and Gordon. So you know they, that's that's a um, you know one of the first sort of little tentacles that you could sort of look at and say um here you go i want to hold your hand this is significance he was blown away by it and apparently first time he heard it he then wanted them to play it again so you know we, we start to track a fair reaction those legacies um you know we've we've got that we've got um the the fact that it's there at the start at the top of uh top of the pops era the fact was that you said the third british number one in in america i mean it's just it's it's phenomenal and it's all building to the moment where of course they head over to america um but even that i think was was quite a time in the planning i I gather that there had been some negotiations between brian epstein and um the producers of the ed sullivan show 
because I think the Ed Sullivan show did send producers out to Europe to try and and um, um, and actually find acts as, as we'll sort of see from um, you know from a couple of people that were on on the show that night. And it, it's interesting negotiation because basically. Um, Epstein wanted to make sure that the Beatles were the headline act and got to play at the you know the start and the end of of the show, and of course the producers were skeptical because it's a case of well you know what have you done, but offering to take a, a vastly reduced amount of money sealed the deal, and that, that's quite canny of Epstein to realise that they're not doing Ed Sullivan in order to get a payday, there are going to be many 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 better paydays to come. Um, and for all that you could possibly say that, you know, they could have had someone with a little bit more experience in the music industry, his his business sense really worked and, and he he knew what he was doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, it absolutely worked in, in, in this case. And yeah, the, you know, I mean, Epstein has sometimes come in for, for criticism in terms of his, his naivety, um, particularly when it came to America. But but the other thing to remember is, is that probably nobody could have done any better anyway. I mean, America was pretty yeah. much an unknown quantity. No other bands had gone over there and broken it. Yeah, two previous number ones definitely don't qualify, especially when one of them is Acker Bilk. Hmm. You know, it's... Um, sorry, Acker. Um, still love you. Uh, it's 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 one of those things, you know? There, 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 there's no... There's no equivalent. There's no path that he could have followed. Um, and you're right. That was a really canny decision. It was far more important to get the lead slots than it was to get a slightly inflated paycheck. And and it obviously worked, you know. And now that we are shifting from, from talking about um, uh, Britain to America, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine how much more it, it could have worked. It, it couldn't really have been more of a success and being able to capture that that moment and being able to get those slots is is absolutely one of the one of the key reasons that that it did work. And when you watch that performance, even now, it's just so glorious. Everything about the way that they're playing, everything about the way they look and move and act, the audience's reaction to it, everything about the way that this song was performed in Ed Sullivan is just so perfect and you can I, I think again you can see how much they're putting into it how they're being careful as well they aren't just throwing themselves around they're not letting themselves get carried away and that's something that Lenin could be particularly guilty of on stage uh, but there's a sense that it, they are being just a little bit restrained now you might want to argue that that's because uh, Brian Epstein asked them to be a little bit more careful uh, a little bit more whatever for the American market but I'm more than happy to think that it's probably they were more than aware of what they were doing and more than aware of the audience that they were playing to to ensure that they were really, really putting their best self forward. And they do. It's a phenomenal performance. And every, every single thing about it is just perfect. Interesting as well that they um, managed to get booked for three consecutive Sundays. Yes. So, you know, there, there's that, that sense of, well, America, we're going to grab you by the throat and we're not going to let go um you know we we're here in order to to really go for it and and the second and third ones were actually in Miami i think the third one may have been pre-recorded um around the time they did the second one as well which which i think is is interesting it sort of leads to um a sort of slightly odd story about um Cynthia Lennon um because she went to um new york with them and of course the the um 
um, the telecast of, of the Ed Sullivan show is famous for the fact that it introduces the band and has the, the caption on John of, you know, sorry, he's sorry, girls, he's married. Um, and he did allow himself to be photographed with Cynthia more there than he had before. But when it came then to get the flight from um, from New York to Miami, basically left her behind. Yeah, it's, and, it's and another that, example of just how shitty Cynthia was treated. Yeah, and after that, she never went on another tour, um, which no doubt led to other issues. Um, so there's 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 quite a lot going on, and, and there are all sorts of stories around that as well about um, you know their their meeting with Muhammad Ali, and he didn't know who they were, and they, they were utterly um, in in awe of him, um, and all of that sort of thing. But I just think that the you know, just to, to get a sense of the fact that the um, the performance in um, in well, February '64 uh, now, there's 700 seats available in in the theatre for the Ed Sullivan show, and they had something like 50,000 applications for that that first one in New York, which had just kind of blown away, you know, any records that they might have had, and. You know, in terms of the the people watching that night as well, you know, the audience was in in excess of the audience that they would have had for um, Elvis's um, initial initial performances, um, you know, on the Ed Sullivan show as well. And what I find interesting is is that sort of you know looking forward that the Beatles maintained a little bit of a relationship with Ed Sullivan and would appear again or they record stuff uh, for the Ed Sullivan show. But you know after um, after a little while, basically, Ed Sullivan didn't want Elvis back, didn't like Elvis at all. Um, but he didn't seem to mind these boys, uh, which is quite useful. So um, but it's, it's look, I, I think this is another one of those staging posts um, that I, I talk about so much. And, and earlier when talking about moving from Liverpool to London, I, I think this this is a moment in American cultural history that still resonates this is the moment perhaps when america stopped being quite so insular and it had reasons to to be insular you know whole sort of american exceptionalism you know america is great american is wonderful had been had been punctured with you know the elephant in the room the assassination of assassination of jfk um late 63 um and and so people talk about there being a mood in the country and they needed something to lift that mood and one of the things or the, the thing that is often credited with it is the performance on the ed sullivan show and the release of i want to hold your hand some people might say that it's because of the sheer innocence and naivety of the lyrics and how joyful the whole thing is um but some people also might credit it to that that kind of youthful exuberance um, and someone coming along and offering just something that's full of full of joy, you know, whatever. I mean, Dylan misheard, um, you know, the uh, one of the lyrics and thought uh, the Beatles were talking about getting high, you know, whatever. OK, that's fine. However it works for you is however it works for you. But I also, you know, it's so worth looking at the other acts on The Ed Sullivan Show, because I will be honest, I assumed that The Ed Sullivan Show was one of those traditional american talk shows but it wasn't it's a variety show and it maintained itself as a variety show up until i think it stopped broadcasting in the very early 70s then it looks like the, the talk shows had really taken over by then so um we get such a 
a limited range of acts on here, but they are uh, some of them are, are people that will have no cultural resonance. Some of them will uh, will be recognised straight away. So we start off with a Dutch magician, magician uh, Fred Caps, very traditional. Doesn't really sound like the audience quite have a grasp on on where the joke is because actually there's one of the routines that you can see on YouTube where he his act is the joke. You know, he's one of those that is the magic is in it slightly going wrong but it's in it slightly going wrong that the magic happens and it's you know you have to be a very good magician in order to be able to do it that badly as it were um so you know okay that's fine very traditional and you know the um the evening uh, dress as well so you know really traditional in that respect then we get um georgia brown from the Broadway production of Oliver. But not only do we get Georgia Brown, for the second song, we also get, do you know this one? The Artful Dodger for singing, um, no, Davy Jones. Okay, okay, yeah, no. You know, so immediately, <laughs> immediately on the same show as the Beatles, we've got a future monkey, um, you know, and, and you just think, oh, right, okay. All right, so I've not seen any stories about him interacting with them backstage or anything like that. But you could you could almost sort of wonder at him looking at that and going, "Hmm, that's interesting." Oliver there, the Beatles there. This has been fun. I'd now like to do that. Um, we then get um, um, Frank Gorshin, an impressionist. Does that name ring a bell with you? Faintly, but you could make it ring a little louder. The Riddler. Ah, of course. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's Thank doing you. a lot of very traditional um, um, kind of impressions of, you know, um, people from American culture at the time. So you can sort of imagine maybe like Bart Lancaster. Or, yeah, but there are very few that people would, would sort of perhaps recognise clearly these days. Worth pointing out that Frank Gorshin also ended up in an episode of Star Trek. Uh, can't remember which one. It doesn't matter because I've got a better one for you later on. So, so look that one up. You'll like that. I'm, I'm really going with the Star Trek stuff today. I'm very pleased. Thank you. It's, 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 it's nice to be validated. We also have Tessie O'Shea doing about eight minutes of a medley of songs. Tessie O'Shea is a, um, a, um, a theatre artist, really. And, and she was at the time um, in a Noel Coward play, and she, I mean, she won a Tony in 65 for a play that, that was actually on at Broadway at the time, which I think is quite interesting. He wrote the part for her. Okay. So we've kind of got the, you know, Lionel Bart Oliver musical in one sense, which is kind of a bit of a new musical. But we've also then got Noel Coward, who's very much more uh, traditional. And she was a very traditional act, um, you know, a little bit saucy and in, in that that sort of, you know, slightly older English slash Welsh lady kind of way. Um, you end up with um, McCall and Brill, who are a very bad comedy act. And they were so bad, actually, in rehearsal that Ed Sullivan told them to rewrite their act because um, they were aiming for, for the wrong audience. Now, Brill, Charlie Brill is worth mentioning because he is in not one, but two episodes of Star Trek. Not only is he in possibly the most famous Star Trek episode of all. 
uh, City in the Edge of Forever. The most famous Star Trek um, episode of all by people who know nothing about Star Trek. <laughs> Do you carry on? <laughs> trouble with Tribbles. Okay, Trouble with Tribbles. Okay, fine. Okay, but yeah, also, yeah. he reprised that role in the Deep, uh, Deep, Deep Space, Space Nine, Nine episode, yeah, Trials uh, and Tribulations, playing the Klingon spy Arnie Darwin. That's correct. Yeah, very good story. Very good story indeed. Yeah. There you go. Um, thank you, thank you for for. I can't believe I'm not the one doing the Star Trek spot. That's like terribly it, right. I know, I know. But but this this is kind of them. Um, I mean, they you know they they had their own successes. Um, you know, in acting and and what have you. Yeah, yeah. Not necessarily you know massive success as a comedy act. You know, it was sketch stuff, and it was quite sort of tame sketch stuff. You know, imagine if. You know, Bob Newhart was having a very off day. Then you you kind of get there, and then there was an acrobatic act with Billy Wells and the Four Fays. Um, so you know, one male and four four females doing you know sort of quite standard stuff, but you know it's it's all it's such a variety program, and of of all of that, the Beatles are the only thing on there that you'd regard as being modern. I mean, sure, musicals are still big magic is still big that's fine but those those were very traditional and yet it, it's no wonder that anyone who might have tuned in um the Beatles would have stood out a mile now for some people that would have been a bad thing some people would have been oh god here we go it's another Elvis type you know group of people come along to corrupt the minds of the youth but to an awful lot of people it would have been oh my god give me more 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 please 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 I think you'd have a hard time listening to I Want to Hold Your Hand and thinking this is corrupting the morals of the youth. I'm sure there are some people that did, but, you know, this isn't Elvis shaking shaking his uh, his pelvis and, and, you know, turning the world around. It's it's also interesting that there is, you know, for the music that is there, like you said, it's, it's very traditional. It's very kind of... Um, I'm fighting shy of using the word stayed. Um, Broadway. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's but, but, you know, that's that's also the other thing about the Beatles coming along at this particular cultural moment is that so much of that kind of early impact of rock and roll has been completely blunted. There's nothing on that bill whatsoever that suggests, you know, the, the sheer changes of, of music which has taken place over the sort of, say, last five to seven years. And, you know, there are many reasons for why kind of that initial burst of rock and roll kind of fell away. Obviously, there's the death of Eddie Cochran, the death of Buddy Holly, Elvis going into the army, scandals around Jerry Lee Lewis. There's, there's, there's many, many reasons why that initial burst of energy just kind of fades away. But it really does. And in terms of kind of American cultural development, that, that burst of initial creativity and exactly the creativity that the Beatles fed on so much, who, who, who drew so much kind of inspiration from, just stops. It just pretty much dies in its arse around 1960-ish um, and doesn't come back. It takes a long time for America to kind of find any meaningful response to the Beatles. And there are other movements which are are happening. You have girl groups, you have Motown emerging, there's the folk movement which is starting to get some real uh, momentum behind it as well. But none of it's really quite finding its way into the mainstream yet. It will, of course it will. Um, but right now there just isn't that much going on 
musically in America. And that lineup is such a good example of of that. There's there's nothing in that. There's not even like a like there's not even like a Cliff Richard equivalent of kind of like some like tame kind of watered down kind of you know. Um, placebo effect rock and roll you know this is there's nothing at all that represents that change it's all this yeah very traditional kind of i mean in britain it would be called end of the pier i mean you don't have that in america but that's what it is end of the pier variety um and then this arrives then i want to hold your hand turns up and all that is just just reduced to nothing it's just rubble and ash after this and and that but yeah there's 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 no that's that's why i want to hold your hands timing is so perfect there's nothing else going on and yeah okay we can talk about post kennedy malaise and all that kind of stuff as well absolutely a factor too but yeah culturally and musically there's just so little there yeah, and, and it would be worth having a look at someone like the the Beach Boys who've been massive and, and I think around this time they release their final surf song yeah. and I've got a funny feeling it's like a an ode to high school, that sort of thing. And and you know, so um what you've got is is kind of like the I'm 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 gonna go for a for a bit of a weird equivalent here. Um Excellent. Portuguese as a language. Okay. Okay. Um, Looking forward to hearing where this is going. Here we go. Okay. You know, no, no, you're you're like the um, the comparison here. Portugal, um, 1500s, 1600s was was, uh, perhaps 1700s as well, went out into the world and kind of did what what the British and the Spanish and various other countries were doing and took over a bunch of countries and exploited them and left them things like language. One of the countries that they, they left their language in was Brazil. So many Brazilians then came back to Portugal with their own version of Portuguese, and that has then fed into the Portuguese language. So it's, it's given as an example of reverse colonization, where you know you send something out into the world and it comes back at you double, and, and you find that the original takes on board some of those aspects. Well, this is the same sort of thing, in that you know the Americans managed to send out rock and roll into the world you know there are so many american forces bases in uh, in europe western europe for example that it would have spread american commerce and industry was sending things out to the world it would have spread but actually then someone's picked it up turned it around done it better sent it back and that in turn has then inspired generations whether it's you know brian wilson or or whether it's a teenage bruce springsteen sitting at home and watching this and going my life has just changed. I now know what I want to do. I'm going to learn me some chords. The, the 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 impact of this is, I mean, it could well be one of those things where, you know, we say, well, the impact of this is then, oh, blah, blah, blah. It may well be that the next week Bruce Springsteen could have tuned in and seen, you know, Johnny and the Ray Guns or whatever band. <laughs> and you've gone, oh, guitar, great. I'll have me some of that. It could just be a coincidence that it's the Beatles. But I'm not sure it probably it is. is. Yeah. You know, it would have been influenced in in a different way. Um, and I'm sure the influence wasn't just a, in a sense of, of looking at them and going, wow, aren't they fantastic? I'm sure also there was that sense of, of listening to the reaction that they were getting and thinking, I want me some of that, please. That'd be dead good. I like the sound of girls going, yay, please sing us another one. There's a fantastic moment in the Ed Sullivan 
recording of I Want to Hold Your Hand that uh, happens when the, the, the camera... Sorry, slight sidebar. Uh, it, one of the most impressive things about the Ed Sullivan show is how well directed that clip of I Want to Hold Your Hand is. Like, the camera moves. It's, there's obviously one point it's up in a rostrum. It goes up to get Ringo on the on the riser. Uh, it cuts between, like, four different, I think, static shots. And you have a shot of the audience. Like, you could not have done that in Lime Grove or BBT, BBC Television Central. It's really slick for 1963, 1964. It's, it's very well produced. But there's a glorious, sorry, that was completely by the by. Um, but there's a glorious moment where uh, the camera pans across the audience and it's mostly capturing like the screaming girls and all the rest of it. And there's one really fat guy in a bow tie who is not fucking impressed by this at all. Who is, I guess he's turned up for the magic act or the trapeze artist. So whatever. He does not look happy to be there. I would love to know if he's ever seen that clip. I'm sure he's long dead now. I'd love to know if he ever saw that clip and go... God, I really wish I'd smiled when I got to see this absolutely pivotal moment in American cultural history. It's interesting, though, isn't it? Because, you know, television in that respect was ahead of the game in America. But then it's also worth reminding ourselves Way that ahead the, of the, game. the recording industry was ahead of the game. I mean, we said earlier that you, know, you can't really hear much of, of McCartney's bass on this. And, and yet, if that record had been produced in America, it would have been as clear as a bell. You know, the technology was so much sharper and the way it was being used was so much more effective, which does make it all the more remarkable that what we have here is a song that is phenomenal and its impact is phenomenal. Um, and it may well be that, um, you know, not as many people will listen to it now and remember it now, but the things that they are listening to have been influenced by people who listened to it or people who listen to people who listen to it. So it's, it's really far reaching, uh, you know, in, in that respect. Um, and so its influence will go on. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, you sort of mentioning technology there, but this, this is also, it's also just a very small sidebar, but yeah, first Beatles song to be recorded in stereo, like actual stereo. That's such a, that's just, just just such an indication of how how primitive everything is. But um, yeah, just also that yeah, that's a, a perfect summation. I think yeah, it's its influence will only ever continue to go. It will always be that pivotal moment, and 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 it is really one of the most important songs I would say has ever been recorded. I don't think that's I don't think that's an understatement, and and it's it's hard to make a statement like that uh, and have it be accurate. But I'm I'm pretty certain I'm. On, solid ground there so let's move over to our usual scoring so what do you want to give i want to hold your hands doesn't doesn't this okay right so having said all of that and having <laughs> nearly made it to, to the hour doesn't this this sort of just make um any of these sort of scoring systems completely and utterly redundant because i'm probably going to say something like an eight or or a nine and you think well after having said all of that shouldn't it be a ten well, yeah, but then I've still got at some point to give a score to in my life. Um, or, I mean, I'm just trying to think of, of um, um, something else that I might want to give a, you know, think is, is a better song. There will be better songs. There will be lyrics where, where things will kind of hit you. There'll be you know, as good as Lennon is is on this, and as amazing as the harmonisation is on this, there will be better vocal performances. George will have more to do on other songs, and and there'll be licks that will just hit you in the face and go, "Wow!" 
um which is which is my way of saying that that adding something um you know supposedly trying to make an objective opinion about something that is subjective is really really difficult can i just say eight and be done you can just say eight and be done and that's fine i i i could not be less invested in objectivity if i tried so i really really don't care what criteria you use to reach that conclusion um i'm gonna give it a nine um i do think it's it's of of anything which is let's say pre-rubber sole i think it's as pretty mm. much as good as you're gonna get if you have to take like a perfect quintessential early beatles song i don't think that there's a better example than than i want to hold your hand the only other one would really be she loves you and i think this is a better song than she loves you um it's just such a perfect two and a half minutes two and a half minutes we've been talking about this for an hour and this song is two and a half minutes long it's utterly absurd and it's just brilliant in every single way yeah sure the recording could be a little bit better or sure one or two people could have more things to do but i don't think it could meaningfully i don't think there's anything you could meaningfully change um and and have it be significantly better or in any way which ought to imply a 10 and i'm not going to give it a 10 because i want to have somewhere to go but yeah i'm going to give it a nine were you aware that when you said that we had been talking for an hour, it did absolutely then tick over onto the hour? Of course I was. I planned these things. Okay, that's fair enough. Well okay. done. Right. Um, well, that well, folks, if you're listening at home, that may not have ticked over to an hour, depending on how much uh, JG edits out of this. Uh, I will do everything I can to ensure that moment occurs precisely on the hour, but I am not going to necessarily claim that I will succeed. All right, let's, uh, let's leave things there for now. Uh, you can contact us by email. We are Beatlesstuffology at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Beatles underscore ology. And you can find my blog at www.jgmacquarie.scot. It's also finally being updated again, so I've actually started writing the damn thing, which, you know, helps a bit. Um, also check out my other podcast, which is Talking Trek to You, uh, where a noob and an expert, which is apparently me, go through the original Star Trek series episode by episode. Please like, rate, and review us on whatever podcatcher you're using so that more people can find the show. Next episode, we will be flipping over to the B-side and we will be discussing this boy. But until then, keep listening. <laughs>